pursuit of freedom. Boldly telling the truth at a time of universal deceit. Are you or have you ever flip-flopped? I've flip-flop-flipped. I'm wishy-washy. I'm a flip-flopper. You thought it was a joke and so you left, you left When I have said that losing you would make me flip my lid Well, I'm not a crook. You know you left, I heard you left You left, you left and left and then you left But now you know I'm utterly mad Did you ever use the term long, dawn, silver? They're coming to take me away, ha-ha They're coming to take me away, ho-ho He's aggressive, he's emotional, he's moody. I cooked your food, I cleaned your house, and this is how you pay me back for all my kind, unselfish, loving deeds. There you go again. So far, it's acting like a teenager with a new credit card. Don't be economic, girly man. Took the initiative of creating the internet. I've now been in 57 states. I think one left to go. Remember when you ran away and I got on my knees and begged you not to leave because I cope with dirt? Read my lips. You left me anyhow and then the days got worse and worse and now you see I've gone completely out of my mind. Wild socialism. They're coming to take me away, haha. They're coming to take me away, ho ho, hee hee, haha. To the funny farm where life is beautiful all the time, and I'll be happy to see those nice young men with their clean white coats, and they're coming to take me away, haha. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. If is means is, if is means is, if is means is, if is means is. The Pursuit of Freedom. And now your host, Phil Pepin. Welcome to The Pursuit of Freedom, the show for people who understand that no one can truly be happy unless they are free. I am your host, Phil Pepin, for a journey in the search of truth. I'll focus on the root causes of the destruction of our great republic. Through research and interviews with the intellectual leaders of the liberty movement, we'll seek solutions and a plan of peaceful action for restoring freedom in America. Many solutions have been written and simply need to be rediscovered by freedom-loving people. We'll seek the wisdom of our founders like Thomas Jefferson, who had the best understanding of the supremacy of individual freedom and how it must be safeguarded from the most dangerous of all human-created institutions, government. And now, the topic of the week. Can I tell you something? I got to tell you one thing. If you expect the freedom... Our topic this week is the corruption of conservatism. The recent events at the RNC convention are but the latest manifestation of the corruption of conservatism. There are many aspects to the impact this corruption has on American society. This week, I will be focusing on the political damage caused by conservatism's downfall. In light of the fact that American voters in overwhelming numbers have created a two-party monopoly, our basic freedoms are in serious peril. The danger exists in large part because the Republican Party is not what it claims to be, a loyal opposition party to the Democrats. 
This is precisely why radical progressive ideology has won every critical political battle over the last 80-plus years. The federal government is now a hybrid of Marxist socialism, militarism, and crony capitalism, more precisely referred to as corporatism. Conservatives need to ask themselves, how is it possible a radical Marxist like Obama was ever elected president? He was the logical outcome of not having a real opposition party. The Republican leadership, in concert with neoconservative publications and radio shows, spoon-fed small dosages of Marxist progressive ideology over decades, constantly redefining conservatism to a point of being unrecognizable from what traditional conservative ideology was. Conservatism, as originally defined, is now the most meaningless word in politics. Americans with no effective alternative ideology competing with Marxism have been desensitized to the incremental implementation of radical doctrine into the mainstream of society. I've often made the observation that most people, especially those who actively participate in the modern Republican Party, are not traditional conservatives, but rather far more like FDR Democrats than the constitutionalists of the original conservative movement born in the 1930s. FDR Democrats were nationalistic. They waved the flag proudly at parades. They believed in a strong military and socialism. The original conservative movement was a loose affiliation of people who opposed FDR's New Deal and its massive expansion of government power. I will cover the history of traditional conservatism and how it became corrupted later. First, it's important to grasp just how big of a fraud the Republican Party has become with only one dominant ideology, gain power at all cost. I'm going to play a few short audio clips to illustrate the depths of the corruption at the 2012 RNC convention. First, an edited portion of a news report from Cincinnati Fox 19 reporter Ben Swan on how the delegates' First Amendment rights were trampled on with a draconian party rule change passed by a fraudulent vote that the outcome was predetermined. The RNC pushed through a new rule that will forever change the way that Republicans choose their candidates. So why is this rule so controversial? Well, consider this. In 1976, Ronald Reagan was a conservative outsider in the Republican Party. But delegates who were conservatives fought back against the presumptive nominee at the time, Gerald Ford, and they forced a brokered convention. Reagan nearly upset Ford thanks to conservative delegates who had had enough with progressive republicanism. Brian Doherty is a Republican National Convention delegate from Pennsylvania. He made this point about this rule change this week. Quote, now these rules as they are, if they were in place in 1976, Ronald Reagan would never have risen to power in the Republican Party. When he challenged Ford in 76, he would not have had a say. And then he would not have been in a position to win in 1980. So, we would not have a President Reagan if those rules had existed back then. Conservatives, Tea Party members, and Liberty supporters immediately vowed a floor fight over this rule. On Tuesday morning, delegates from Virginia and Rhode Island were on their way to lead that fight when their bus driver refused to stop at the convention center three times, circling the building, then leaving the area altogether. And when they returned to the convention center, well, 
the delegates had already missed their chance to vote on this issue. Now, inside the convention hall, delegates who did make it, they were asked by Speaker of the House John Boehner to vote on adopting this new rule. Now, listen as the vote is taken. The question is on the adoption of the resolution. All those in favor signify by saying aye. All those opposed, no. We need another chair. The ayes have it. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid on the table. In the opinion of the chair, the ayes have it? How could the Speaker of the House determine clearly how many voted aye and how many voted no? Well, maybe there's a good reason, a really good reason, that Boehner claimed the ayes had it. Today, incredible cell phone video was released as delegates stood by and videotaped the teleprompter that Speaker Boehner was reading from. The most controversial rule in the Republican Party history, according to countless conservatives, wasn't voted through at all. It was scripted. Despite the shouts of what at least half the room of delegates appeared to have been voting, Boehner just read along with the script. A lot of delegates at the RNC convention were clearly wrong, but no group received more discrimination than the delegates for Congressman Ron Paul. In the next clip are comments from former RNC chairman Michael Steele on Jon Stewart's Daily Show. Steele was extremely critical of Romney's campaign and the RNC's combined effort to strip Ron Paul delegates of their rights to participate as guaranteed in the First Amendment of the Constitution. The way that they treated Ron Paul and his supporters in this campaign yeah, was nothing next there. to appalling. Like, yeah. it was, they didn't give them any opportunity. It was... They, they put up a, a nice video, a, a nice video of, of Ron Paul at the convention. He didn't get to uh, address them. They put in their plank ways that made it harder for his delegates to continue to express those kinds of insurgencies. What, what the Republican National Committee did to Ron Paul was the height of rudeness and stupidity. For this reason... <laughs> For this reason, why would you alienate an individual who has the ability to attract a new generation of voters who are already skeptical of your institution, but are willing to at least listen through the vehicle of this individual mm -hmm. and the words that he's saying? Why would you alienate them? Get on the floor and not let them speak, not have his name go up on the board to see the so numbers of electoral me. votes that he received. Why? This is crazy. Because you, you've been on the inside of this. You know these people. Because they're, they're afraid of that which they cannot control. And, and to the extent that they feel they cannot control right. him right. in those moments. Right. The whole idea of freedom of speech is sort of like, well, it's a good idea, but. And so, so, the, so, and it's true. And the reality of it is, the reality of it is, he has been saying the same thing. This man has been consistent from his first days in Congress. Since 1820. There you go. <laughs> no, he is, it's remarkable when you watch it's, through that. He and, is. and he's been very consistent. And so that consistency has led to a, a leadership style that attracts. And so I think when they see that, they don't know what to do with it. The RNC's leadership behavior was so outrageous that the current Republican governor of Maine refused to attend the convention in protest of the treatment that the Maine delegation received. GOP chairman of a number of state parties raised objections, including Texas, where the pursuit of freedom show originates. 
Ultimately, the RNC establishment succeeded, but this is not the first time a major Republican convention was marred in controversy. In the next segment of the show, titled The Texas Freedom Report, I'll be interviewing a political activist who, from the floor of the convention, caused the establishment to illegally shut down the entire 1996 Texas Republican State Convention. They did this because he was persuading other delegates to support rule changes of their own. Except in this case, the rules were aimed at the party bosses and corrupt politicians. There is no question that the problems plaguing the Republican Party have been around for decades. That leads me to the second part of our topic of the week, a brief history of the traditional conservative movement, or what has been named recently the paleoconservative movement. I'll chronologically point out key events that led to the rise and then the eventual marginalization of traditional conservative values. The pursuit of freedom, sounding the warning against tyranny, whether it comes from the land, sea, or air. I mentioned earlier that the conservative movement was born in the 1930s, a loose affiliation of people who were constitutionalists. Their motivation was a deep concern with Roosevelt's New Deal that expanded the power and influence of the federal government. Roosevelt, long before Rob Emanuel, never let a crisis go to waste. Besides concern over the growth of government, the conservatives were worried about the increasingly aggressive American foreign policy and the rapidly spreading European war that would soon engulf the world in the Second World War. The same ideological group was opposed to World War I. Unlike neoconservatives today, paleoconservatives were non-interventionist. They adhered to the just war principles that set a very high standard for waging war, a key element being it's never justified to be the aggressor. They would have been appalled by George W. Bush's preemptive war doctrine that's at the heart of the federal government's perpetual war on terror. Over time, the conservative movement became more organized and grew significantly. However, political victories were rare as the party system as it is today gave the advantage to establishment candidates. One of the rare and most notable victories for the early conservative movement was Howard Buffett, who was the father of billionaire investor Warren Buffett. He successfully ran for Congress in 1942. Howard Buffett was good friends with Murray Rothbard and shared much of his philosophy. The election of Senator Robert Taft was an even bigger victory for conservatives as Taft became known as Mr. Republican. His non-interventionist stands and opposition to the New Deal put him at odds with establishment Republicans. In the late 40s, the conservative movement found a unifying issue over growing concern of the rise of communism in post-World War II America. Not surprisingly, conservatives were adamantly anti-communist, and this elevated the movement's influence. In 1953, Russell Kirk published his book, The Conservative Mind, a manifesto that helped define conservative philosophy. A number of conservative publications were started up during this period as intellectuals sought to promote the philosophy. In 1955, William Buckley founded National Review. Buckley shared many of the attributes of traditional conservatives except in one major area, foreign policy. Buckley was indistinguishable from establishment Republicans on foreign policy, and he would later become an intellectual leader of neoconservatives like Rush Limbaugh. 
Though not considered a conservative, President Eisenhower was influenced by the conservative movement in the area of foreign policy, as he was adamantly against the Korean War. He successfully campaigned as an anti-war candidate. Yes, Virginia, being anti-war was popular then and was a big part of conservative philosophy. Conservatives believed that war was the last resort, only justified if it's in self-defense. The political joke then was, conservatives want a big military but don't want to go anywhere with it. Liberals want a small military that goes everywhere. The paleoconservative movement reached a peak in 1964 with the Republican nomination of Barry Goldwater. This proved to be a hollow victory as the Republican establishment, for the most part, refused to support Goldwater and he was defeated in a landslide by Johnson in the general election. Not all of the establishment Republicans abandoned Goldwater. Richard Nixon, a very skilled politician, worked hard to help Goldwater, recognizing the importance of the large conservative movement he represented. This proved to be very valuable for Nixon, who successfully won the Republican nomination in 1968 with a lot of help from Goldwater conservatives. Unfortunately, many would come to regret that help as Nixon was anything but conservative. The Goldwater candidacy launched the political career of a former Democrat turned conservative, Ronald Reagan. As Goldwater's spokesman, he gained a large following among conservatives. Reagan's A Time for Choosing speech is considered one of the greatest political campaign speeches of modern times. As the paleoconservative movement was reaching new heights throughout the 60s and 70s, William Buckley's brand of conservatism was becoming a competitive force. In the late 60s, a group of interventionists came up with a name for themselves, neoconservatives. The origins of pure neoconservatism are the same as progressives, Woodrow Wilson and his doctrine of making the world safe for democracy. With the exception of Buckley and a few others, most neoconservatives were former progressive Democrats. They preferred a more incremental approach to introducing Marxist doctrine than the more heavy-handed Democrats of that time. Buckley's old right facade, combined with an impressive vocabulary, catapulted him to the top of think tank leaders. He became very useful to the neoconservatives by becoming the Pied Piper to the paleoconservatives. He helped fuse a lust for military empire into the conservative doctrine, replacing non-intervention as the dominant foreign policy that was part of the foundation of traditional conservatism. It's time for a short commercial break. In the next segment is a special Texas Freedom Report focusing on the events at the RNC convention. We'll also talk about solutions to the political problems we're facing. I'll be interviewing Robert X. Johnson, a longtime political activist who has spent years working as a reformer in the Texas Republican Party. Mr. Johnson advocates the idea that people continue to try to reform the Republican Party. I will also be talking to Tom and Kathy Glass, both Texas libertarian activists who believe the Libertarian Party is the only option left for freedom-loving Americans. Kathy Glass was a former libertarian candidate for Texas governor in 2010. The Pursuit of Freedom, the show for people ready to take back their republic.
Texas Freedom Report. Our first interview today is with Robert X. Johnson. Robert is a longtime activist within the Republican Party. Robert, if you would tell our audience a little bit about some of the key things you've done in the past in your activism and and if you would update us on what's going on with you currently. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, currently, I'm a property tax consultant and I'm fighting Texas County appraisal districts to lower the appraised value of furniture inventory. So I have furniture work with furniture stores. My political activism goes back to 1988. And at one time I was the state parliamentarian for the Republican Party of Texas. I'm currently a retired parliamentarian, but I'm still interested and still paying attention to the politics and what's going on. Robert, your experience as a state parliamentarian gives you a unique perspective of the events at the RNC convention I would like you to share. Well, basically, the RNC, the Republican National Convention, showed themselves to be quite fearful of new people coming in, specifically liberty-minded Ron Paulers, Tea Party, that sort of folks that became delegates this year. And they started to circle the wagons, as in entrenching themselves, the old guard Republican or the Beltway Republicans, entrenching themselves in power and consolidating their power. This manifested itself in basically rule changes where the Republican National Committee, the permanent organization of the party that lasts between national conventions, empowered its, they now have power to write rules between conventions, which is almost an absurd, unheard of thing. But it's a panic move, so they have total control. Another rule they passed was that the nominee for the party gets to pick all the delegates to the national convention. This is a move directed to avoid these newcomers using state mechanisms to become delegates in the future. So basically, I, I look at this as the RNC showing a panic mode because they're fearing the new folks coming in might take the place over, which, you know, until you're the majority, that's how it works. Currently, they are the majority, and they gavel down or just run roughshod over everybody else. But in doing so, they expose themselves for the character that they really have, which isn't very much character. So the RNC consolidated power over the process of picking a presidential nominee and basically have taken that process completely away from the state party level. Well, it's more about the eliminating of people they don't like. Uh, Like I said, the winner is supposed to be the guy with the majority. Clearly, the Romney folks were the majority. 
by running roughshod over everybody else, they did not serve the idea of building a party. What they did is serve themselves by consolidating power unto themselves. Now, because it's the national party, the only thing it really affects is the nomination for president in the future. And by consolidating power to the RNC, who, who is all their members are elected at the state level, no rule of the national party can control a state party machinery. In other words, they, uh, their authority ends at the president, and that's it. So they can control all the delegates going to the national convention, but they can't control how state parties are run. So by putting all their eggs in the basket of the RNC, the national committee, whose 150 members are all elected three to each state, one state chairman, a committee woman, and a committee man, the, the liberty-minded folks just have to recognize that the new target is taking over the RNC and taking over state machinery in order to elect those three positions. So what you're saying is that there's still an opportunity to undo the damage that the RNC has caused, that it's not as draconian as some people might think because the impact on the state parties is strictly limited to picking a president. So working on other offices within the party structure is still possible. Yes, to make it crystal clear, the RNC, the Republican National Convention, was the, is the entity that has all the power controlling the primary process for the nomination of a presidential candidate. That's it. That's all they really have power to control. They can control the date of the primary for president. They can control the method of electing delegates. That's what they took. They assume more power unto themselves so that the state rules don't matter so much on the national committee or the national uh, election of delegates. Now, one of the things they did that was kind of draconian was they put rulemaking authority into the national committee which is the permanent organization that's there between conventions. The, the Achilles heel of that particular tactic, they think they were real clever and real draconian. They just basically put all the power in the hands of the states by doing that. If the liberty-minded folks can stay focused and organize at the state level, at their state convention, they can elect a state chairman, which they should be doing anyhow. They should focus on taking the National Committee woman position and the National Committee man position. If they do that in a sufficient number of states, then you'll have control over the National Republican Committee, which now has rulemaking authority. And you can fix everything that they broke at this convention. You can then fix if you do that. So 2014 is a golden opportunity for liberty-minded folks to get organized. You really speak with authority on this issue because in 1996, due to actions you took as a delegate on the floor of the Texas Republican Convention, caused the leadership to illegally shut that convention down. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, as a political, you know, self-described strategist, I have always been working on the rules to bring power to the lowest levels possible or to make effective our platform. You know, we literally, we can control the 
political process by controlling the primaries and a political party is what does that. So in 96, I was very successful at winning debates on the rules committee and among the delegates. But when it got to the floor of the convention, they just gaveled everything down and shut, literally shut down the convention. If you look at the back of any party rules, you'll see in 1996, they adopted no rules. That was a direct response to the fact that I was successfully winning the debate. But if you don't have the majority, you're supposed to win. The mistake I made was not realizing at that time that you always need to shoot for and try to take control of the convention itself by controlling the convention chairman. Well, at the RNC, the exact same thing is happening. The Without control, uh, I believe that the liberty-minded delegates who are fighting in opposition to these draconian rule changes were winning the debate. They had an opportunity to persuade the other delegates and maybe vote these things down. There was a big movement for minority reports. There was a movement on the floor. There was a lot of lobbying going on. In other words, the political process was functioning, but they didn't control the convention chair or the gavel. Consequently, the whole thing was rigged, and they just gaveled them down. Well, I personally believe that the Romney folks that did this had the majority. Therefore, there was no necessity of being so draconian, just like there was no necessity of gaveling me down back in 96. But they did it because they're filled with fear, and they fear the American Republic process of a deliberative assembly. Consequently, they showed their hand. We know who they are. Some people will say, hey, they're so corrupt, we got to give up. No, I'm saying we got to take over. Just because they're bad doesn't mean we give up. It just means we have to recognize they were the majority. They won. They were fools to win by cheating and draconian tactics because now we know we can never trust them. And so all compromising uh, ideas or strategies go basically go out the window. We need to take over state by state the Republican Party machinery if you think the Republican Party is your vehicle for being active in American politics. And so that's the lesson. They they took their fears and turned it into a, a in other words, the liberty-minded folk has to recognize who we're dealing with. They exposed themselves by acting like fools. One of the rule changes that you were trying to get passed, I have a particular interest in because it deals with holding Republican candidates accountable to the platform, thereby protecting the ideology of the Republican Party. The Republican Party claims to have an ideology of being for constitutionally limited government and low taxes. Throughout my entire life, I have not seen Republicans on any meaningful level govern in that way. So the biggest problem the Republican Party has is protecting its ideology. And one of the biggest obstacles to protecting that ideology is incumbency. So it stands to reason that term limits needs to go along with the package deal for rule changes to really start turning the system around. Could you give us an idea of the steps necessary to make these changes happen? That's pretty accurate. The bottom line is I was winning the debate. Had they allowed the rules to come to the floor and people start thinking about them, there was just a lot of good ideas in there, like making our platform matter. You know, I, it was just some things were just simple rule changes, but there was real important changes. My goal in proposing these changes was to teach the delegates that true political power is at the lowest level, not the highest. And I was giving them tools and teaching them 
that by using party rules, you could affect effectively control the on-ramp to political power, i.e. the primary. You see, a lot of people think that uh, because of gerrymandering, if you know what the term means, uh, most politic battles are won in the primary. They're not won at the general election. A few, a few are, but most are won in the primary. Well, a political party controls the primary to a great extent, and that control is exercised through its rules. So I was introducing these types of understandings to the delegates at the 96th State Convention. Had they listened, and I might have persuaded a majority to adopt some of these rules, those in charge at that time recognized this was the last thing they wanted to happen. So instead of risking losing the debate and losing the vote, they just gaveled the whole convention down and brought it all to a close. That was it. I didn't see that coming. My mistake as a strategist. Ever since then, I've been telling political activists, first thing you got to do, take over the chairmanship of the party. Because if you have the votes to win any vote, that's the first vote you want to go. The very first thing you need to do is vote for a chairman of a convention who will give you honest votes in the future. Then you could possibly win some of these debates. When you are talking about party rules, you're not talking about something minor. Because party rules are backed up by the courts because a political party is the expression of the First Amendment's right to assemble and address grievances. Through court rulings, the court has established that in many cases, party rules have more authority over the conduct of a political party than state or even federal laws do. You've made a compelling case for utilizing the party system to affect change. You're the political strategist. What type of strategies do you recommend liberty movement activists take to make this a reality? Well, quoting Sun Tzu a little bit here, first thing is you got to get your own house in order. you got to get unified. Understand the things you do control. Understand the things you don't control. Have a singular plan and somehow get the discipline of your own folks. Now, when you have those things, now you have an effective force in politics. The goal is always got to be at the state level, culminating at the state conventions where you elect chairman of the party, chairman of the convention, the two RN national committee man, committee woman, and the governing board of your state. All of those positions are something you have to go for. Now, you're only going to get that if you're unified. And I'm saying everybody should stay. I mean, the numbers to win a general election are 10 times greater than it would be to raise the numbers in unity to win a state convention of a political party. So those thinking about leaving the Republican Party, I guess that's one idea. But I would wholly and heartily recommend not doing that because we're close to taking over most of the state. We have close to having a majority, an effective working majority in most states. And if we have a bunch of our old members you know, just give up at the first sign of trouble, that's not very good battling. I think that if we get active at the state level, take over the state machinery, you can stop the corruption that took place in the primaries as well as institute new rule changes that will make the, the platform actually have some teeth. It can all be done with the rules. That's where it's at. And so freedom of assembly at a state level you have to understand, is a very powerful place to be operating at. That's the key to your strategy, is the numbers game. 
that affecting change within a political party during a primary is the only realistic time to affect political change. The numbers just get too astronomical when you try to rally massive amounts of people to make changes at the general election level. One issue that I have observed that rallies more support among a wide range of activists is term limits. But term limits that have been attempted by state governments have failed in the courts. However, court rulings indicate that term limits imposed by a political party would not be overturned. Yes, in fact, Abraham Lincoln, when he was a congressman in the Whig Party, he could not run the second term in the Whig Party because of what they called the rotation rule. I have written a rule similar to that. I call it Rule 44 for Texas Republican Party, where we could just simply write a rule changing the eligibility requirements for any elected position in the state of Texas and put opposing term limits. The way I wrote it, for example, state representatives or state senators, a person can only run for a particular office, say, two consecutive terms. That doesn't kick them out permanently, but that's a pretty mild first step. But if you adopted it as a party rule, then that person can still run in the general election as an independent, but they could not run as a Republican. And that's therein lies a tremendous power. And the, those thinking about leaving the party understand we can do a lot with the machinery of a freedom of assembly entity called a political party. And I would say the idea is let's get to the majority position, take over the machinery, and then do something with it. Right now, state parties are mostly just cheerleaders for ind independent individuals who are seeking power in the legislative branches and in Congress and the federal branches. But if you take over a political party, you can actually write rules that connect these candidates running in our primary to the platform. And you can do things that are very powerful, like you said, the in the incumbency problem by adopting unilateral term limits. A party rule in the Republican Party that term limits its candidates would have no effect on the Democrats. So it is unilateral. Think how powerful it is. And I mean, that's exercise of true political might. And if the liberty-minded folks stay organized, stay unified, and stay in the Republican Party, we have, an, we have an effective chance of actually changing the political course of this nation. To sum up what you're saying, activists need to get organized, have a plan, work within the party structure, affect changes, and thereby that is the most efficient way to reform the republic. That's right. Uh, freedom of the fourth clause of the First Amendment, freedom of assembly, sets a political party rulemaking authority technically in most circumstances higher than state law, state constitutions, and most federal law. And that's how the Supreme Court has ruled in the Fong case in 1988 and again in a case in 2000 basically saying a political party has the ultimate right to decide its own fate in promoting its ideals. In this case, those ideals are articulated in the platform, and the champion of those ideals is supposed to be our candidates. Therefore, when we pass rules that connect the candidate to the platform, we should have no problem with state law or constitutional challenge to the federal courts. I believe that if we push in this direction— we can affect change from the lowest level up 
Robert, thank you for your time. You've given liberty movement activists a lot to consider. When the people fear the government, there is tyranny. When the government fears the people, there is liberty. Up next in our special Texas Freedom Report segment, we'll be talking to Tom Glass, vice chairman of the Libertarian Party of Texas, and his wife, Kathy Glass, who was the Libertarian candidate for governor of Texas in 2010. She is also the head of the political committee of the Libertarian Party of Texas and the chair of the Harris County Libertarian Party. Kathy, I'd like to start with you and get your take on the events at the RNC convention, focusing on the treatment of the delegates and the controversial rule changes. Well, what happened was something I knew was going to happen. I just didn't know where or when or exactly what form it was going to take. But I knew that they were going to be shut down because the Republican Party is owned by the special interests. And what this rule change means, not just to the Long Paul delegates, but all the grassroots and Tea Party people, the non-establishment people, it means you can never win. It is a weak game. If you think we were so close this time, we came within 10% of victory this time. We can just double our efforts and we'll win next time. No, we'll move the goalposts. Next time, we'll need to have 20% more. And it will, you will never be able to work for liberty within this rig system. Washington is broken. Austin's broken, for that matter. The corrupt two-party system is broken. And I know good people have been doing the best humans can do to try to achieve liberty within the Republican Party. These events this week have demonstrated they can never be successful because the game is rigged. I understand the belief that the Republican Party is so corrupt that it's no longer possible to affect change. I certainly was frustrated by almost 20 years as an activist making efforts to reform the Republican Party. All attempts to do so failed miserably. We lost by very large margins, and it became clear to me that the majority of Republicans have really only one ideology, to win elections and gain power. Is that a fair assessment? That's true. Tom and I were both delegates to the state a convention, the Republican State Convention in 2008. And we saw there the way they treat it was, an, it was an, almost a precursor of what happened this week. The way they bent the rules, the way they turned off the microphones, the way they wouldn't, they ignored points of orders. And I said, this is not going to work. You cannot work harder or smarter or better and overcome this sort of trickery. So that's why I said it's just not something that's going to work because the system itself is corrupt. So that's why I said liberty activists need to come together in a place where they can work and pull their efforts and not be fractured and fragmented in a place that it's not corrupt. And whatever you want to say about the Libertarian Party, we're not corrupt. The special interests don't own us. So it's there to be made of whatever a dedicated, hardcore group of hardworking people want to make it. I do believe the Libertarian Party is an option for many people, especially in light of the very destructive mindset Americans have developed that there are only two political parties, and that thinking has helped create a two-party monopoly. And like all monopolies, they do what's best for the system, not the people. Tom, as vice chairman of the Libertarian Party of Texas, this is a good time to have you make the case for people to consider the Libertarian Party as a viable option. Well, I think uh, the Libertarian Party of Texas is the only place that we're going to be able to, to save our liberty, our constitution, and our country. Uh, and because, uh, as Kathy said, uh, 
the, the main uh, two parties are hopelessly corrupt. Washington is hopelessly broken. And so if you want liberty in our time, what we have to do is build a viable structure. Uh, we've got a structure. We just need a viable party that people start taking seriously. We, we, we need serious people to come into the party and start acting like a serious party and uh, start uh, the, building the respect that it takes to uh, build a party. I've been reading a book called Grassroots Women, which is a history of how the Republican Party grew uh, by a woman named Meg Greer. It's very instructive. She went and interviewed most of the people who helped build the Republican Party in Texas from the 50s, 60s, and on, on through the 90s. And you, she asked them, why did you leave the, Republic, the Democratic Party, which was the dominant party in your day, where all the action was in the primaries, uh, and if you win the primary, you win the general election, why did you go over to the Republican primaries and start doing this work and take yourself out of the action to build the Republican Party in this dominated, new Democratic state that Texas was back then? And they said, well, uh, we thought the system was... Uh, that we wanted competition, what you just said a minute ago. They said, we thought that the, the Democrats were not following their own rules. A lot of times there was voter corruption and that sort of thing going on. And they weren't doing what we wanted them to do from an issues point of perspective. Does any of that sound familiar to you? Uh, all of that is the very reason why we need to build a new party uh, here in the state of Texas, and it can be done. We know it can be done because Republicans did it here in the state of Texas, and it's the only way we're going to get our liberty. So that's why people should be coming over. We're ready. Uh, and the thing is, the liberty activists that people that we're talking to here, which whether it's Tea Party folks, Ron Paul people, or constitutional supporters, uh, they have a wonderful home here in the Libertarian Party because in the Libertarian Party, the vast majority of us love our Constitution, our country, and we love liberty, and that's what we're dedicated to. So uh, come home to the Libertarian Party, Texas. The RNC convention exposed some very serious problems. What safeguards does the Libertarian Party have in place to protect activist participation in the party and to safeguard the ideology by holding Libertarian candidates accountable to your platform? Well, we've got a long way to go there, and we, we, we could certainly uh, learn a lot from people like you, Phil, and we've already been talking to Robert uh, X. Johnson uh, to, to know what needs to be done to uh, help do the rules to make sure that as we start growing and the special interests start trying to buy our candidates, what we can do to discipline uh, them. Uh, but we've, we've got more work to do, and we need people who've been thinking about it and living in it to, to make sure that while we've got control of it before the special interests do, that we modify our rules and our cultural and our institutions so that it doesn't happen as we grow. What you are describing is a party that is somewhat of an empty canvas to be painted by people who get involved. That's right. And, and the deal is, you're not going to have to change it much, because the ideals that the libertarians have are in sync with the, with the liberty activists that have been working in the Republican Party. Um, there may be, the thing that needs to be changed the most is uh, we need to do the hard work to be serious, to, to support our candidates and get the message out. The mechanics. The mechanics. Uh, and that's and, and what's interesting is the people who've been doing the mechanics in the Republican Party can 
probably are, are very, becoming very valuable to the Libertarian Party because uh, Libertarians have been more focused on the ideas instead of the, 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 what Blackwell calls the essentials to winning. Morton Blackwell, you know, of the Liberty uh, the Leadership Alliance uh, talks about in terms of building a party. So the Libertarian Party is rock-solid ideologically, but needs to develop the infrastructure to become competitive. I'm an independent now. However, my experience as a Republican, I admired the Libertarian Party's message, but was very critical of it as a political party. I believe two things must happen to make a political party work for the cause of liberty. It must defend its ideology, and it must be competitive politically. Yes, I say that the Libertarian Party needs the sort of expertise and work ethic that uh, the liberty activists in the Republican Party have demonstrated they know how to do. And I say that they can put the same amount of work into the Libertarian Party and get it up to where it needs to be, and then we're set to go. And it will pay off much better than if they put that amount of work in the Republican Party. Yeah, and, and we do need to build the safeguard, institutional safeguards to stop the special interests from buying our candidates the way they have the Republicans. Uh, but we can do that. We can do that. So far, it hasn't been an issue because nobody's tried to buy us off yet, or but really not successfully. So, but, but that's something we need to be on guard, I guess, because it can happen. With success comes the problem of people trying to take advantage of that success. It would be wise to expect to have to build safeguards into the system. Kathy, as a former candidate, could you tell me what you encountered? Were you accepted at forums and in general? How did people react to your candidacy? Well, I was allowed to speak. I was well received. There were some places that I was shut out and they wouldn't let me speak. But if I got to talk to people, I might have gone in with a room full or an auditorium full of people and they were like, what are you about? Who are you? But they walked out with my yard signs. And I did this not because I educated them or even persuaded them of anything. I just communicated to them who I was and I was there and that we wanted the same things. I just let them know that I was an alternative for them to achieve their goals, and they were hungry for that. So all, I think that's what we need to do is, is not get the message out about the philosophy so much as get the message out that we are there and we stand for the same things. And, in fact, we're the only vehicle that will achieve the things that they want. That's what I found all over the state of Texas. You mentioned that you were excluded from some events. Were these uh, forums that had Republicans and Democrats participating, and you were excluded because you were a libertarian? Yes, sometimes. Sometimes they would let the Democrat in. Uh, there were some tea parties, or just, and a tea party is is not um, monolithic. It's, it, it is very organic. It takes the character and then absorbs the nature of the organizers and the people. So... It, it could be a lot of different things. There are some tea parties and some movements and meetings that I was just not allowed to be in there because I think the leaders knew that if I came in, their members would respond to me, and so I wasn't allowed in. But when I got in, and if I could go around those blocks, blockages, uh, then I could connect with the people. Because people of Texas are pretty united on what they want, what they think that is essential to uh, restore their lost liberty. They're focused on the things that they think have to be done. And they're willing to put aside all these side issues that really don't matter. They're ready to prioritize and work together to get the key things done. And they, they will do that 
regardless of party. Yeah, we've got a country to save. We've got a country, a constitution, and our liberty to save. It's time to get to it. Indeed it is time. Well, thank you both very much for being guests on the show, and we really appreciate your insights. Thank you, Phil. Good night, Phil. We're going to take a short commercial break, and for the final segment of the show, I'm going to do an analysis of the ideas presented by our guest. Before my interview with Robert X. Johnson today, I thought there were really only two options for activists who want to get involved in the restoration of freedom. After the break, I'll explain what I mean. Pursuit of Freedom, with your host, Phil Pepin. The RNC convention has raised a serious dilemma for liberty movement activists. There is little doubt that many will refuse to work within the Republican Party after the treatment the delegates received. The Libertarian Party is hoping for disenchanted Ron Paul delegates to put their efforts there. Senator Rand Paul tactics appear to be to try to cooperate with the establishment and support what he considers like-minded candidates. I'm not aware that Senator Paul is promoting an organized effort to take over the party system. Robert X. Johnson offers a third option. Unlike Senator Paul's concept, there is no intention to cooperate with the establishment other than to be cordial and to follow the rules. The goal is, through unity around a set of specific targets, a majority of delegates would then go about changing party rules to hold candidates accountable and then impose party-enforced term limits. 
There is merit to all the ideas, but I believe the best political solution is Robert X. Johnson's plan. I don't discourage anyone from joining the Libertarian Party, and the idea of building a viable Libertarian Party would go a long way in ending the two-party monopoly. Robert X. Johnson's concept has a track record of success, and it never puts a person in the position to have to compromise core principles. Thank you for listening, and join us next week for The Pursuit of Freedom. Oh,